Hello and welcome to Running on Joy with Francesca Goodwin, the podcast that celebrates putting one foot in front of the other in whatever form that takes. This is a podcast that explores how we can live in a more connected, creative and compassionate manner for the benefit of our communities, our planet and our own mental and physical health. I'm your host, Francesca Goodwin, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what joy means to them. Running on Joy is ad-free, but if you enjoy the show, please do take a moment to leave a review and give feedback wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might also consider supporting the work of Running on Joy guest Dan Lawson through rubbish shoes and rerun clothing to end the cycle of wastage in the sports clothing and footwear industries. Follow at Rubbish Shoes and at Rerun.Clothing on Instagram for further information. Hello everyone. I've been looking forward to today's conversation so much because I feel that my guest literally sings to my own heartbeat and they are not only a brilliant editor of one of trail running's most respected magazines, a writer, a podcaster, an all-round literary raconteur, but are also a totally badass athlete in their own right, a setter of fastest known times and both an eloquent and active advocate for environmental justice. As is becoming traditional on this podcast, I will now allow them to introduce themselves in their own words. Yeah, hi. So um, I'm Zoe Rome, and I'm the editor-in-chief at Trail Runner Magazine, as well as the managing editor at Women's Running Magazine here at Outside. And yeah, I'm an avid runner, mostly trails, though I, I live in the mountains, so in the winter, there's a lot of road involved in that too. Um writer, big reader, uh, big eater, and <laughs> definitely an environmental advocate. I um, am super passionate about engaging runners in um, environmental activism and trying to connect folks to how they can be more active and engaged in the issues that matter in their bioregion. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Sorry. I like that you say that, you know, you're, you're a big eater as well. Actually, our meeting being a little bit later than I initially thought meant that I could go and have lunch. And so I'm probably more spirited talking to you <laughs> rather than looking at the clock. Like, well, yeah, I just <laughs> scarfed a muffin. So <laughs> we are fully prepared for this. We're runners. We know what we're doing. <laughs> Um, so I kind of want to dial back um, because as I was saying briefly um, before starting to record you're so multifaceted and I'm just quite interested in sort of your background growing up um, how you got into running and writing and whether that was a linear process and and yeah how that all unfolded for you <laughs> yeah um, I definitely got into writing before I did running I Growing up, I only ever wanted to be a writer. I never really considered any other option, <laughs> really. Um, I started like writing, writing my own little books and like publishing, printing books uh, when I was in like first grade, giving them to friends and teachers. Um, and just, you know, was always a huge reader. And I think that a lot of kids who read a lot think that like, oh, well, obviously the best job is to just write. And yeah, had always just been really, really interested in like figuring out how to express my thoughts in the in the written word and connect with others 
that way. Um, and yeah, went on to study literature as an undergraduate and then eventually kind of fine-tuned that with a journalism degree and figured out how to better reach more people. Um, I got into running much later. I um, studied abroad in Italy when I was in high school and I just kind of got bored <laughs> while I was there because I went to school six days a week, but I had the afternoons off. Um, so I would just fill my afternoons with like running like I would just run around um I had like a crappy old Casio watch I had no idea what I was doing but I would just like run around I was living outside of Milan so I'd either run in downtown Milan or in some of the forests kind of on the outskirts of town and who knew that there is an actual sport that is running through the forests <laughs> um so when I moved back from Milan I the habit stuck just because I kind of needed something to do in the afternoons and walking turned into running and running turned into trail running and that turned into kind of an obsession it's so great when the thing that you were just doing you can suddenly think oh I'm actually doing a thing <laughs> oh people spend their whole lives doing this cool <laughs> it's not just me and my little books and the trees <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's, that, that's other people doing it oh that's amazing um I love hearing that you that you made little books as well because it's something that kids that kids do so I teach and um I, I just think it's marvelous that these like magical talismans of things that I wish that they would keep on to them like some authors did I think it's <laughs> Bronte's Bronte's used to make like yeah exactly I'm just the long lost Bronte sister yeah absolutely let's just roll with that from now on <laughs> And so, like, so obviously those are those are two massive things in your life and you've now kind of brought those together. So what was then the trajectory kind of from that and you running on the trails um, and getting into kind of bigger distances and then also your writing, developing with journalism. And then how did you kind of end up at, at Trail Runner magazine and kind of like your editing position there? Um, I know you studied some environmental journalism as well. So I'm kind of interested in what that that sort of played as well. Yeah, so the kind of deeper context is that I had always been really interested in writing things that people would actually read. When I was studying literature, a lot of what I was writing, like these um, papers were interesting to me, but like I would go present them at a conference and there'd be like, if I was lucky, seven people listening. And then like maybe someone would find them on JSTOR, maybe not. Um, and I was spending just immense amount of time and energy and emotional bandwidth writing these things that just no one was gonna no one was gonna read and that didn't really sit right for me and I at the same time was working as a throughout college worked as a backpacking guide in New Mexico during the summers so I was really trying to bring together kind of like my physical experience out in the world and my intellectual experience in school and I felt frustrated that there wasn't a practice that kind of married those things so I got really interested in trying to figure out how to use writings kind of like very interior personal practice to better connect with my like outdoor experience like how do I like use writing connect people with like physical activity and with physical landscapes because I was really curious um how to how to just get people more engaged with the world that they were moving through so my undergraduate um like honors thesis actually ended up being about how literate different aspects of literature can connect us with landscapes and make us experience like how it kind of um upends a traditional model of sympathy like using adam smith's model of sympathy um to connect with landscapes 
and how writers like Edward Abbey, Mary Austin, Annie Dillard, and Gary Snyder um, kind of mess with that presumption. And I got really interested in messing with that presumption myself. And I thought journalism was a much sharper tool to connect people with with the world. Um, it, you would write things that people actually read. You would write in plain, beautiful language that actually was meant to be read and to be spoken and to be heard over the radio. And so out of graduate school, I got hired to do environmental journalism and local reporting at an NPR station in Aspen, Colorado. And after about a year of that, I was just kind of burnt out. It was a really small station and I was working just crazy hours. I had to be at work every morning at five and I just didn't, I wasn't really living a very healthy life, kind of burning the candle at both ends, um, wasn't able to train very much or very well. And so I saw that Trail Runner magazine was hiring and they were just a couple towns over from Aspen. And I was like, you know what? Like it's maybe on the surface less prestigious than working at NPR, but like prestige isn't gonna make me happy. It's not gonna make me healthy. I need to, I need to pursue a career that is gonna feel joyful and exciting to show up more days than not. And so I applied to Trail Runner and then two years later I got the opportunity to be editor in chief and here we are. Oh, that's so such a brave move. And I'm I'm just so pleased that, that is that has come all together for you um in such a kind of serendipitous way too, that you were kind of trying to connect those things together. And then this opportunity kind of came, sort of came to you and you've been able to pursue that. And I can kind of tell in, in the way that your face lights up talking about it as well, that that has like genuinely really kind of lit your fire really, which yeah. is amazing. And I know that, so Trail Runner's been taken over now by outside. You also mentioned now that you're doing some um, stuff with women's running. Is that a new, that's a new position, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're kind of like making a strategic move to just be a bit more collaborative between running publications, because like, if I write something about women trail running, that has the opportunity to appear on more platforms. And that's a really great way to better incentivize coverage of women's sports, which in the past has been historically under incentivized, under rewarded. So it is just kind of a structural way of bringing more attention to female excellence in the world of road running, trail running, wherever people run, there's women doing amazing things and taking the concerns and fears, hopes and dreams of women seriously in both the road and, and trail space. So I really view both jobs as kind of having this amazing sort of like activist stewardship role. Like how do I, we use the media to actively steward the sport, not just be like a passive observer, but try to push the sport forward, try to bring up issues that need um attention brought to them yeah that's really cool so kind of using it to to not necessarily change content but refocus attention yeah and structure it yeah that makes, exactly. that makes a lot of sense and do you think that in terms of the actual um content how has outsider taking over changed any of that um they've mostly just given us the bandwidth to do a bit more like I you know I used to not have the structural support um to generate the quantity of work I can generate now that's cool and yeah. do you, is it also kind of reflecting changes in readership like what do what do you get the sense that your readers want from you yeah I think you know <laughs> I remember I got an email when I first started working at trail runner someone was complaining that 
quote unquote, almost half of our content felt like it was geared at women, um, which was like too, too much. And I was like, well, half of people are women. Like, (laughs) so, um, you know, I think it's been, it's been good because they've re again, re-incentivized like actual journalistic coverage of women's sports, women's trail running. And historically trail runner magazine hadn't really done that great of a job with it. Like most of our photos weren't taken by women. Most of the covers weren't of women. Most of the content wasn't written for or by women and if it was it was written with the sense like this is for women and like I want to see women writing stuff for everyone I want to see women represented as authorities and badass athletes and people again whose concerns are real and important and worth listening to whatever gender you are and I think that that's been kind of a shift is like making sure that we're really prioritizing voices that have been um, historically overlooked or only allowed to speak to the fact that they've been historically overlooked and I want to see everyone um i want to see authorities from from every space from every background in in the in the content and media that i consume yeah that yeah that's totally totally right on (laughs) really like you don't just want kind of post on things that's like oh we brought out some pink trainers like women are like this yeah yeah or it'd be like well if we're gonna write a piece about periods then we'll interview a woman and it's like we can talk about things besides periods which periods are great and important and i think undercovered but again, like I want to see women talking about every aspect of sports physiology, not just women's issues. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, oh, women menstruate. Yeah, we've known that for quite a long time. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks for letting us know that. Thanks for letting me write about it again. <laughs> We're enlightened now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and how do you, because it sounds like, as you said, with the people that first wrote into you, like how do you kind of balance those um, sort of conflicts of interest but between kind of demands of, even kind of you know people who might want the content that is like this is a training plan and this is Mm -hmm. um this is a new gear review but then to to the stuff that is kind of like that's the meaty more long form kind of stuff that feels more in tandem with like your voice yeah (laughs) do you how do you get that balance how do you just yeah that's a really great question something I'm always trying to finesse and I think you know, something that I think about is not trying to be all things to all people. I want to be really good at the few things I do, not just okay at trying to do everything. And so there's going to be some people who don't resonate with what we do. And that's okay. That's part of the strategy is not trying to be, you know, like just white bread running content. Like I want to be really good, insightful, like have a perspective, have a voice that people can identify with or not identify with. Um, because the people who are going to actually like keep, you know, the business afloat are going to be people who do resonate with your values, with your voice, with your perspective. And so I think one of the bigger shifts lately is that we are no longer putting out a print magazine. So we have to be really, really intentional about like where we allocate those resources when it comes to creating long form content. So like, how do we use budget from what used to be producing a print magazine to spend more time like reporting and researching um longer form pieces or just having fun writing longer pieces like I'm working on a piece about how women are underrepresented at UTMB like less than 10 percent of people who do UTMB are women which is a shockingly low number <laughs> um especially for someone who like I feel like I move through the world surrounded by incredible women and then when you enter a space that's like very uh where again, there are a lot of amazing women there, but you're like, wow, there's a lot of like 90% dudes. Um, that's something that like previously we might not have investigated as much in the 
passed because the print deadlines made it harder to like, like would this feel current if we had to publish it in November, but I had like several months to like into the data to like do the reporting, to do the interviews, to do all these things. And so it's actually been kind of refreshing to not be beholden to a print schedule, which allows me to do better reporting um, and be a bit more responsive to the issues that, that I'm really interested in pursuing rather than feeling like I just have to fill a hole in a magazine. Yeah, it can be more, I guess it's more, it's more relevant as well in, in that sense as well, in terms of people kind of buying into that voice. As yeah. Well. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. Like whenever we do reader surveys or look at self-reported data, everyone tends to self-report that they prefer longer meatier pieces, but the data tells a pretty different story. So I think it just comes down to us, like kind of being brave and courageous and saying like, the data is not always going to support doing a ton of research on, you know, underrepresentation of women, underrepresentation of other folks of other marginalized identities. Like you're not going to find that in the data, but we're values driven and we're going to do it anyway because we're journalists and we know that important stories are important, whether or not you have a chart that says they're important. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's again, professional judgment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it just takes years to finesse that professional judgment. And like, we, I've been wrong about a lot of stuff. And it's just about trying to move towards a place of being slightly more right, and then staying humble about what we still don't know and what we need to learn. Yeah. And how do you how do you go about sourcing those stories? Obviously, there are the things that are happening in the news UTMB obviously just happened. And um, so there's definitely story fodder there. But in terms of the slightly more obscure or kind of opinion pieces, um, how how is that driven? Yeah, so we're really always trying to find more writers. Um, I've really tried to like keep our like document, like our information on the website about how people can and should pitch us, really try to keep that um, super sharp and keep that fresh so that people have everything they need to send us their story. Um, because we really like, we want a balance of like stuff being really good and well-written, but also stuff that really speaks to and, and serves the community. And that's always, um, it's always tough. But like, I think one of the biggest things I've done is just Ray, raise freelancer pay rates. Like I've tripled our freelancer payout since becoming editor in chief. And that allows us to tap into entirely new freelancer markets. And I, you know, I just think that folks being adequately compensated for their labor is the most, one of the most important things that I can do with, with the power I have. And, you know, it's maybe not the sexiest strategic shift, but increasing payout, make sure that we can get the best talent writing for our magazine as possible. No, I think it might not be the sexiest, but it, it certainly solves a lot of issues. I mean, if we're already talking about, you know, women being underrepresented in big trail races and things because they don't have the time to train and stuff whilst juggling, juggling a family and lots of other commitments and things, well, that needs to happen in terms of other outlets such as writing and stuff as well. Um, so I think that, that that all goes together really neatly, really, and not being afraid to talk about it as well. Yes. It's a real issue for all creatives um, and, and freelancers. So yeah, I think that's that's really bold yeah. um, and, and necessary and a practical answer. Um, what do you think? So obviously you're also bold in the choices that you make for the content. You know, you're, you're not scared to go there with stuff that maybe doesn't get covered in other areas. What do you think is the most kind of important 
subject or issue that you've addressed thus far? That's probably quite a thorny question. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, well, I think, you know, I've written about a lot of stuff that I feel like other people have done well, if not significantly better than me. But I think something that I've done in this space that I wasn't seeing a lot of other folks doing is really just trying to make it super clear and concrete why runners should be really engaged as environmental activists and advocates. I think historically folks in outdoor rec have been hesitant to be political and to like upset people or alienate people. And I've really come through with the perspective that like, if you're trail running, you have to be engaged. Like you have to be advocating for your sport. And I think if you've historically felt like you haven't had to be politically active, it's because you've been insulated by a, several layers of, of privilege that have shielded you from the fact that most folks do have to be, you know, active advocates for um, both diversity and environmental causes. And I think that, you know, really just trying to connect people again with like, hey, you may not think that you're an environmental voter or that you need to be active in this space, but like, if you run trails, you're benefiting from the Clean Air Act, from the Clean Waters Act, like you're benefiting from several, you know, different layers of policy and agency. And how do I make those kind of abstract mega issues feel really concrete and immediate to the average runner or the person who just, again, at this point may not identify as an environmental activist? And how do I help connect those bigger environmental issues to their day-to-day -day running practice? Yeah, that that's that's really cool. And it, it kind of, you cover that. Um, I, I, I sort of was thinking about what you would say to people who have who find these issues difficult to to discuss or to confront um and and kind of like and people who have general issues with sort of publicizing sort of politicizing the public sphere as well um and you you've kind of covered that with um with your explanation there and i know that in your own writing you sort of use the term um environmental racism as well mm. um I'm quite interested to kind of hear a little bit more about that it might not be something that people have sort of thought of on how that actually impacts them both on a local and national level too. Yeah, I think that's been, you know, one of my really like if I want runners to better understand one issue, that would be the issue. Because so often when we'll do like every time we trail runner magazine posts on Facebook, like, oh, you know, there's a lack of diversity in trail running a lot of people make the uh, misunderstood or bad faith argument that like, oh, it's just from a lack of desire from folks from marginalized backgrounds not wanting to participate. And A, we don't have the data that supports that. And B, that's uh, you're making a pretty big assumption there with that statement. And when you look at like the history of this country, it is absolutely no surprise, like the way that we have redlined, which is like a historical way of preventing people of color from living in certain areas, particularly like upper middle-class white zones. Um, like there are people in our country that because of, you know, like their, their, the color of their skin, they just have less access to outdoor recreation, to, to trails, to safe sidewalks, to all these things. And if you're a runner, I think to me, it's, it should be implicit in that identification that you work to make sure other people have the same access to the resources that you that you have and it's again it's not just because some folks don't want to trail run it's because many many folks because of systems of oppression have been 
um, disallowed from enjoying outdoor and public spaces in the same way that folks like me have been able to for for pretty much ever. Yeah. And do you think that that is also, I mean, in terms of accessibility of, well, competitive trail running, certainly, do you think that's also a, a broader social issue too, in, in terms of kind of financial inequality as well? Totally. Yeah. And again, like, I think it, you know, even outside of competitive trail running, like the outdoors are essential for mental health and for physical health and clean air is essential for physical health. And if you look at the rates of like, who's getting asthma in our country, it's, it's predominantly folks of color who are forced to live in areas of city that have less quality air. Um, the places that we put like bus depots, that we put factories, that we put transportation infrastructure, all of those things reflect um, racist systems of oppression in our country. And they, you know, inherently make some folks quality of life more challenging than others. And I think to ignore that is, that's a, that's a, that's a choice that people are making. Um, we have the data and they're choosing to believe that, that, yeah, some story about their own, I don't know, deservingness and worthiness of access and of health. And I think that fundamentally people have a right to mental and physical health and the way that we've set up our country just doesn't reflect that right. Mm -hmm. And do you think, I mean, we, we're talking about it and obviously there's an aspect to getting these things getting better and improving is having these dialogues and people listening to them and educating themselves. What else do you think that trail runners can do practically um, to promote environmental justice um, and, yeah. inclusion, and inclusion within our sport? Voting is the most important thing you can do. Like, again, like talking with your friends is a great way to start to kind of lower those barriers and create that safe space for folks to like ask questions. I know a lot of people are reluctant to get involved sometimes because they don't want to look stupid or say the wrong thing. And just giving space so that people can ask good faith questions if that's their intent and so that you can educate others is one thing but i think the most important thing is to is to to vote in our country like especially young folks our rates of political participation are shockingly low and if you looked at trail runners as a voting block i remember during the 2020 election i looked up how many folks are involved in the coal industry in the US versus how many people identify as trail runners. And it's like, there's 10 times more trail runners. Like we're a huge voting block. Uh, if we were in alignment on environmental issues, that would be a very, very powerful political force. And we should be in alignment on these issues of environmental justice and access and clean air, clean water, all these things. Um, and I think that it would be great if we, if we voted in our own best interest. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people can kind of do disservice to how much impact that can have um, as well. I mean, especially like on the local level, it's so, so critical. Like I live in Colorado and our local elections, like even if it's just someone running for school board or city council, like those elections are critical. Um, I live in a very small town. So deciding who gets to be on my board of trustees is a huge environmental issue for me because those people are going to plan and zone my community. And that's a huge way to just make sure, I don't know, yeah, like if you want to lower barriers to access, like voting for your city council is is huge. Like those are really major and your vote totally like in a town of 8,000 people my vote is very significant and I mean that that 
played a massive um, role. And I realized that, so I, I'm not so okay with this because of living in the UK, but like, but the, correct me if I'm wrong, um, politics was really kind of the crux of a lot of access issues that came just just before kind of like the Biden Biden government to cope mm. stuff. Um, so um, do you have thoughts on that? And what, what direction is that now taking? <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, the good news is that, like, you know, the Biden administration just passed in the, um, in the, uh, in in the, oh, I can't remember the name of it, is the Inflation Act, Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. That's the biggest piece of climate policy our country has ever seen. Um, that's a huge victory. That's not to be underestimated. And there's a lot of policies in there that outdoor recreationalists should be really, really excited about. And just again, anyone who's interested in clean air, clean water and the right to a healthy life should be super, super interested in. And, you know, it took years and years and years of coalition building and policy finessing to get there. But yeah, I think that that's a huge victory. And I think that also zooming out and not just focusing on access, because I think sometimes historically access has been a way of not politicizing things like, um, uh, like, you know, I used to be very, I used to be a climber and access was a big political issue for that group, right? Like making sure that we have the right and ability to just go climb on the stuff that we want to climb, um, working with other outdoor recreation groups to make sure that we can climb that stuff. And I think that that is important and that's one facet of what we do, but I'm not just interested in making sure people have like literal physical access to trails. I want them to have, again, like access to clean air, access to all these other things, um, uh, you know, like, again, not putting bus depots, not putting garbage dumps in low-income neighborhoods um, that are going to have a disproportionate impact on folks of color, like, that to me is a, a bigger issue. And always, like, being too narrowly focused on access obscures a lot of these justice-oriented issues. But again, access is important. I think that's like how, like to me, that's kind of like the Trojan horse for like, here's how you get involved. And then I want to move people along from understanding like, okay, you like trail running. Here's how we get other people trail running. And like along the spectrum is also like, oh, well, they need, like people need this to thrive and to trail run. People need this to thrive and to trail run. So how do we take that act, that issue of access and matriculate people kind of down this pipeline towards a more nuanced understanding of environmental justice kind of outside of the lens of trail running too. Yeah, that's a really neat explanation actually. So access literally as an entry point <laughs> to, yeah. to, to all of those things that are actually going to have an impact. And I know, um, so this is kind of like a, a kind of a plug opportunity as well. I know you've got a book coming out with Tina Muir is that um, um, about becoming a sustainable runner. Um, and uh, I just wanted to give you the chance to talk about that as well. Yeah. So yeah, fellow Brit, Tina Muir, uh, we became <laughs> friends on Twitter because we were tweeting about how like our, our, our compost bins, um, and we became friends that way, um, which is a, a great way to make friends as an adult is to find fellow composting enthusiasts. And we really wanted to make a book that says exactly kind of what I've been talking about here is giving everyday runners a chance to connect environmentalism and environmental action to their daily practice, whether it's like helping people be a bit more thoughtful about, you know, how they travel, how they buy gear, or how they get politically engaged and kind of packaging it all up so that those things are inexorably intertwined rather than being like, oh, sure, like, 
I'll bike to the trailhead, but I'm not going to vote <laughs> or like, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be the pushy person at my group run talking about why other people should vote for a certain policy. We wanted to make it very, very clear that all of these things are, um, like give people a guide to which actions are the most important and how they can get more involved in those areas, but doing it through the frame of running. And we also wanted to write a good bit about how people can sustain their own running practice. Cause I think that that's been really helpful for, again, bringing people into the conversation, getting more people in the environmentalism tent is starting from that place of like a shared passion and a shared understanding of our sport running. And that kind of lowers people's defenses so that we can all come in and discuss these issues with openness and curiosity and humility. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I, I think like having that kind of how-to guide um, and actually sort of like giving people the confidence to have that kind of autonomous voice um, and kind of a, a voice in the arena as well and feel like feel like that's the right thing to do um and the smaller things that they can do as well that are e more easily actionable I think that's that's amazing um and also just really cool that there's two two women that have been <laughs> united on Twitter by their love of compost and composting tips yeah. um that are doing this together and I know that kind of putting yourself in print and putting this out there and you will probably I assume already have experienced this um, with what you do. I mean, that does leave you open to some criticism as well. And I'm kind of interested in um, any backlash that you have hmm. received. Um, with yeah, I get, I get a lot of backlash, <laughs> but like, A, again, like this isn't just me being touchy feely, like all of this is supported by data. I am a researcher at heart. I'm a journalist. I'm trained to follow the facts. Like, if you're going to try to bring it to me with criticism, like I need you to show your work. I need to see the data that supports your argument. And I have yet to see someone who has brought a well-argued, a well-argued critique. I think a lot of people, um, you know, I think the biggest critique we get is like, don't politicize it, like keep it apolitical. And again, I think that you can only have that stance if you're insulated by a healthy layer of, of, of privilege and you have never had to worry about if there's going to be safe sidewalks in your neighborhood if you've never had asthma and have to worry about air quality concerns in your neighborhood if you've um grown up near parks where you felt safe to run your entire life if you've never had to be concerned because of the color of your skin running alone and being perceived as a threat or being threatened because of your gender presentation and identity um you know I, I think that, again, like I have the data that shows like there are very clear patterns <laughs> to all of these things. And to not engage is a clear choice. And that's a choice in support of the status quo. But like pretending that we cannot be political is just that's that's not like that's not a true option here. Um, because, again, like the reason that I have access to parks and trails right now is because of politics. It's because of policy. It's because of systems that were intentionally put in place. It's not because of magic and happenstance. And to pretend that it's so is to be intentionally ignorant. And so I think that it's just like trying to, again, give people that kind of safer, comfortable space to engage on these issues and not make it like a pushy political environment, but saying like, hey, I get it. Like I grew up in, you know, the rural South. Like I have been, um, you know, I've I've traveled a long way in my own journey from where I began in my less nuanced understanding of these issues. 
Um, but like, here's the super serious conversation that we need to have. And if you say that you like this community and you like this sport, then to me, that demands a certain level of engagement on these issues. And I think that, again, I just, most people are coming from a place of not having reckoned with their own privilege and the history of like why they are able to engage in a less stressful way in these spaces. And I think that for my part, because I'm a fairly privileged white lady, I want to be the person that can provide that space for them to come ask honest, good faith questions um, to help educate them. Because I don't think that should be the job of people who are already um, marginalized and who are already engaged on these issues, just trying to, you know, not not judge folks who have a different understanding. But once that once people have been presented with the facts and information, if they want to continue to be ignorant and letting them know that that's a that's an intentional choice on their part. That's not, that's, that's not a real option. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that, that, so albeit you being a privileged woman in this position, do you think that that kind of ties in with the narratives that women um, or people of color or minority groups, that kind of narrative of you can't, that comes perhaps in both running and journalism do you think that's kind of where that internal narrative comes from that this isn't a safe space and I guess what you're doing in terms of holding that space is one of the potential um remedies to that situation um and what else do you think that we can do for those groups to make them feel that both running and journalism are spaces that they are, are part of, are included, and can can put things out there. <laughs> totally. Um. Again, like I'm always like culture shifts are tough to talk about because they take a lot of time and tweaking and nuance. But also, we are the culture, and when we shift things in ourselves, we can shift the culture over time. Um. So I think it's like simultaneously policy change and 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 culture shift. And I think that it's more than just like saying people are welcome here. It's assessing every level of every system to see like, why might people not feel welcome and safe here? Um, because so often, like, like I remember this was years and years ago before I was editor in chief working with a photo editor who was like, you know, yeah, we just don't get a lot of pictures from black photographers. I don't know why that is. They must just not want to do this. And it's like, that's a pretty racist assumption. And like looking at our pay structure, like it's a prohibitive pay structure, like looking at how much equipment it takes to get into this and like looking at the spaces that you need to go to get trail running photos and the time that you need to have. Like, yeah, I don't think it's like, that hard at all to say like why our photographers tend to predominantly be white men like we have set up a structure that makes it very hard for folks of other identities to do this thing because of again like pay um you know just barriers to entry and making sure that you're not just like abstractly saying like oh well we've never said anything that would explicitly make them feel unwelcome trying to just have a much more nuanced understanding driven by folks in those like asking people like what's going on here that makes it hard for you to do this? I'm listening without judgment and I'm going to fix it. Yeah, absolutely. And the way that, I guess this this comes on to something that I want to talk about um, in a bit, but that idea also with kind of trail running and the way that we portray it on, on things like social media and the fact that 
It's like, this is what a trail run looks like. <laughs> and that might not be the same for all people. And that no. can be really prohibitive because they don't feel like they are part of that sort of Instagrammable kind of culture of what a trail run should be. You know, I mean, I live totally. like, in an urban environment. My, I don't have a mountain outside that I can stand on top of. But I'm, again, like that's speaking from, from a position of privilege that I have any green space to go and run in and stuff. Totally, right. And like, if you look at, again, like the kinds of folks who've historically had an easier time getting into photography, like, is it any wonder that the images they produce tend to reflect their own privilege back to them? Like, no, it is not. So the more we can disrupt those cycles, the more we can kind of positively spin them in a direction that perpetuates diversity rather than discouraging it. Yeah, absolutely with you on that. And I like, so your um, turntables blog that you have, I really enjoy that um, because it does feel like this kind of attempt to sort of create a to, to use the Virginia Woolf thing of a room of one's own in a way um, in terms of connecting like the physical and the intellectual and and I think we're all too quick a bit like with what I was saying about kind of Instagrammable trails of having like this notion of what a writer should look like and then what an athlete should look like um, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on like what a what just like a life on the move and uh, or like a life lived on the move looks like and the experience of it. Yeah, I think I love that you brought up Virginia Woolf. Actually, when I um, I studied abroad in England for a bit and I lived in, in Bloomsbury in the building where she wrote that. So I've always had a bit of a personal connection to that text and to Virginia Woolf um, as well as, as just one of my favorite writers of all time. But I feel like to, to that point, I haven't had a lot of, like, I've had a lot of in sport female role models and in writing a lot of amazing female role models. And at the intersection has felt a bit anemic to me. Like, I haven't had that many precedents of like a woman who was trying to compete at the elite level in sport and also trying to be like a public intellectual at the same time. And so I think I've just been trying to own that space a bit in the hopes that like there's other folks out there that will resonate with that. And I think that it comes from, again, like historically women haven't exactly been empowered to own their intellect or to own their physical selves in the way that being an elite athlete is right like we're often reduced down to our bodies in a way that's less empowering so like how do I try to celebrate and marry the pinnacle of both my body and my brain through both a sport practice and an intellectual writing practice and my answer is a very weird blog <laughs> I love I really dig the weird blog <laughs> it's brilliant and also I mean like uh, talking of that kind of that that connection that you've made between the literary and the physical you've also got um your beautifully crafted podcast DNF um as well which has all the kind of production and storytelling quality of things like radio lab and stuff for, for people who listen to that but um definitely more finessed than anything that this this podcast is going to work. Yeah, I mean <laughs> I, I think it's so great to have like different types of podcasts in the running space right like when I was kind of doing market research and deciding what I wanted DNF to sound like I knew I wanted to bring my experience from working at NPR as a producer um to the run space again like how do I marry my like weird journal like my high-end audio production journalist self with my dorky runner self and my answer was the first ever like storytelling sound rich trail running podcast yeah so is that kind of what drew you to that 
kind of audio and and the narrative based framework as well like what kind of drew you to that storytelling aspect thing? yeah well a no one else was doing it and it was what I would want to listen to like I was hearing a lot like I'm almost just excited I'm like oh this is two women talking on a running podcast like <laughs> that's pretty rare in our space like so much of it is dudes talking to other dudes about stuff that's important to dudes and I wanted to break that mold and again not do like a women's running podcast I just wanted to be a woman owning her voice talking to other women talking to men talking to all kinds of different people but not just doing an interview really trying to help people better tell the stories that like I needed to hear as a young person and like failure is a big scary thing so how do I present it in a way that's like beautiful and, and and dignified and kind of like can help lower those emotional barriers to a tough subject through just using classic storytelling uh storytelling techniques I love that and I I particularly enjoyed uh this is the episode the crack up with Hillary Allen and so you explore that kind of the idea of intersectionality um and then this idea that kind of in the age of social media everyone seems to be branded as like one thing or the other and only kind of perceive themselves as sort of a failure or they perceive themselves as failure when kind of an aspect of themselves breaks down so when kind of that public persona gets broken there's that sort of idea of who am I what am I what is my worth and things and I love the fact with DNF you sort of you flip that and examine what we can learn from that process of failure that actually failure is quite often more interesting than than successes because as you say successes often look like one dude talking to another dude about what you did yes (laughs) um and I'm I'm really interested in, in also like what what have you failed greatly at um and and kind of like what how that has maybe influenced your aims with the podcast yeah I think like to me I always like my biggest fear is that I'm not going to realize my potential as an athlete and writer um which you know like I'm very young in my career for both of those things but that's something I'm very afraid of and I think that kind of part of that journey is reconciling with all the little micro failures along the way like I DNF'd the Western States Endurance Run um, at the beginning of the summer and that was pretty hard because it felt like my first real shot to compete like as a real elite athlete on like a internationally competitive stage and I just didn't have a good day Um, but also like I've had like all and I think people don't always see like how much failure goes into being a writer but like so many articles pieces have been abandoned have been rejected um like it just feels kind of like a a glacier of failure and you only ever just see the little shiny tip poking out of the water people see what I do publish and what does get published other places but they don't see how many things I've just like you know had to abandon or I've given up on or that I'll I'm telling myself I'll get back to later and I feel like I'm always just trying to keep moving forward in spite of sometimes feeling a little bit weighed down by the idea that I've maybe not realized my potential with with some things. So it kind of feels like a slow motion failure that I'm trying to a- avoid. <laughs> yeah, no, I, t- I totally get that. And I think, uh, you know, write, writing, journalism, it, it takes like every day there's that reaching out with the potential of being rejected because you have to reach out all the time. There's that kind of, there's that introverted space where you are just writing or creating something. But at the end of that, you've got to, 
you've got to either send something out for others to critique or you've got to reach out to ask someone for something and things and yeah there's like so much potential for failure every moment um, and just you know putting yourself on a start line is I mean it's so brave and again there's that kind of narrative that we've been talking about of like access to those start lines for particular groups and we don't really see that that journey we just see the kind of like oh well there's the dnf or did you finish it or where did you come with the digi podium kind of thing and there isn't that sort of like you are awesome because you <laughs> there you got there like <laughs> the years that have gone into just leading up to that moment of putting one foot forward like you just don't get that celebration I guess really yeah who cares like what happens after that that's freaking great (laughs) yeah I think like a lot of us have the experience of like you know maybe if you have like hopefully you have non-runner friends of like I would tell friends who aren't ultra runners like yeah you know like I DNF'd my 100 I only ran 80 miles and they'd be like you ran 80 miles that's amazing and I'm kind of like yeah, but like that, the goal was to do a hundred. So like, I have a hard time celebrating that I ran 80 when the goal and every intent, I put years of work into doing the hundred. Um, so kind of sitting in that tension of like, sure, I've done something that was like amazing to other people, but kind of trying to honor and respect my own very high expectations, which I think it's like good that they're high. I think it's good and normal that I'm not satisfied with having run 80 miles. Like, that's exactly the kind of person that should be running hundreds. Um, you know, and that's how I feel with my writing is like, I'll publish something that I'll be like, you know, I'll see it out in the world and I'll be like, Oh, I just want to keep tweaking it and finessing it. And people be like, this is so good. And it's like, I have to sit in that tension of knowing that like the reason I feel I'll always feel a little bit dissatisfied with like channeling that into the next thing and like making it better next time and not getting too bogged down and, and looking backwards and assessing what I've done in the past and trying to be like, all right. So like, here, I'll use this tool more effectively in the future. Like I'm going to finesse my nutrition strategy or something to help kind of keep motivating forward. Yeah, that's, that's a really well-reasoned response actually. made me think a lot about that, you know, we shouldn't apologize for having high expectations. Like it, it, having those expectations is a really good thing and it's what makes us do hard things and we should be doing hard things um and as you say like actually using that failure as a as a problem solving thing I know like people like Courtney DeWalter are really like eloquent at talking about you know that the ultra running endurance running it's a puzzle a lot of it and actually the fact that it is a, a brain game as well as a physical game is maybe what what draws people like us to go and do these things exactly because <laughs> it's not just about how fast you can run it's about <laughs> it's about solving those things and if we can turn those learning experiences into a problem that needs to be solved rather than just be like oh well like I did pretty well kind of thing yeah yeah that that's what keeps us doing it so yeah, yeah thanks, thanks for that because that's me that's really made me kind of consider that too um I think like also just going don't going back to what we were kind of saying with um with like the, the crack up episode of, of DNF as well. How do you think that people can um preserve their sort of autonomy and sincerity um in what's becoming 
and increasingly competitive with lots of, like with the the coverage of the sport but also the fact that it is becoming a lot more media driven how can people keep that and I know that's something that like hot off the press that you've examined quite recently an article that you read which I which I've consumed and loved and I, I'm quite interested in in going a little bit deeper into that yeah I would say like as someone that does work in media um it's okay and normal to not want to be your own PR agency and media outlet I think that the fact that so much power and money revolves around social media kind of incentivizes people feeling like they're responsible for constantly telling and representing your own story and being a brand. And I am not interested in that. Like I'm super interested in consistently publishing stuff that like isn't on brand, um, that is surprising or challenging to previous you know, existing notions of myself to myself. Um, you know, like that's, that's why I love to write is not because I want to have a clear and consistent image of myself, but because I want to continue to investigate that image and dig deeper and understand the, the why. And I think there's so much pressure for people to like be just a runner and like have, you know, like shiny images of themselves and like always be talking about running. And then when you get injured or when you get burnt out, or when you just are a person who has other ideas and interests outside of running, it's hard to reconcile those things because it's not rewarded by our current, um, systems. And so just giving yourself the space to incentivize and reward those things in whatever ways you can, um, I think is really, really important and not trying to condense yourself down or flatten yourself or make yourself easily understandable, because I think that that isn't how, that's not how people work, but unfortunately it's how social media works. And so people who are able to do that to an extent are rewarded in kind of an outsized way. Um, and I think as a culture, we should get better at rewarding folks who um, are kind of anti-brand, <laughs> um, whose identities and whose ways of thinking and being in the world isn't easily commodifiable and feels a bit more slippery and loose. I'm really interested in, in that. And I think that people just giving themselves permission to be strange and weird especially to themselves is really really critical I, I think that's great I, I love um it's like I lead um PSHE um and kind of citizenship in my school and I just love saying to children like be weird being weird yes. is great that's the best thing that you can be and and then they like by the end of kind of the day will get being like yes being weird is great and yeah and I just think that that we need to instill more weirdness and things. And like I, I loved your um, blog post as well about kind of the analogy of coffee and taste and and kind of sort of having that more sort of so, yeah, I was just going, got it. Drinking <laughs> <laughs> coffee right now. And and that sort of being an analogy for a slower kind of a more mindful consumption. Um, of both kind of media and life and how we cultivate taste. And do you think that? I guess you are kind of in the position where you are driving sort of that shift, but do you think there is a general trend in the manner in which we sort of like the media coverage of our sport is going? Do you think it is shifting towards being able to accommodate that? I uh, I don't. I think that like where I see people spending, unfortunately, the most time and money, like this is just the data that I have access to. Again, like our longer stuff isn't the most read typically um still important we're still going to do it anyway but like yeah shorter stuff tends to outperform and I think that again like I'm always going to try to write like I'd rather have like 10 people who are big like 
who are big fans of me than 100 people who are lukewarm on me. Um, but I, you still, to an extent, like just strategically have to put out some, a little bit of vanilla stuff to like kind of set a foundation and like develop an audience and then funnel them towards your amazing weird stuff. Um, but I think, you know, there is like, there's definitely an explosion of kind of like niche media in the trail space. And I think there are a lot of people doing a really great job, but I think there's also, it is a crowded market and there's a lot of stuff out there that I'll just like, for my part, doesn't resonate with me because it kind of feels like it's responding more to the needs of someone just wanting to put something out in the world than someone saying, Hey, I've noticed there's nothing like this. I need to be the person that makes it. Yeah. Well, so I guess like all the things that I, that I read of yours, they have this very kind of like very tangible quality that you almost feel like the kind of profile pieces that you do as well, that they feel like you could kind of reach out and hold the hand of like, whether it's the like, lady who does the um llama hauling <laughs> to the to this station at the station at Leadville 100 which I absolutely love but there's that real kind of human quality to it and have you do you think always kind of been driven to to reach out for those stories of the kind of the overlooked the stuff that wouldn't usually get covered yeah like I always really love kind of the more esoteric sports stories that's why I love the story about um Vicky, who used to be the like alpaca wrangler for the Leadville race series is because like, I just resonated with the idea of this woman, like just being obsessed with like pack animals and wanting to spend time, like as someone who's gets very obsessive themselves, I've always gravitated towards stories of other obsessive weirdos. And how do I capture that same energy on, on the page? Like, you know, writing this um, profile about Courtney DeWalter, who's a pretty obsessive athlete herself and who was just kind of an enigmatic figure to me um I'm always really interested in trying to capture people who are hard to capture who aren't always the best at telling their own story um who are just kind of like have that slippery nature about them and who like some part of their like weirdness or their obsessiveness resonates with me and trusting that that'll find other folks who are weird and obsessive themselves and I guess that kind of that sort of links a lot of what we've been talking about in terms of, I guess, how, what we value within the kind of running community, what we perhaps value within the the writing community as well. That's very much also about um, how we build communities in general around us, and not not just kind of on the page or or on the trail. And I think that's that kind of links to notions of empathy as well. And I was wondering what your thoughts are in terms of what empathy means, both in running and in writing. Yeah, I'm always, I'm super interested in empathy and exploring its limits and its utility. I think it's definitely like, I'm really interested, like, again, like even dating back to my undergraduate thesis that I touched on earlier, like, how do I create empathy, not just with other people, but with like landscapes, with bioregions, with systems, with hyper objects, like, how do I make people feel empathetic for Earth, which is every, everything, everyone on it, right? And I think that like, one of the limits of trail running media and like the way that I've covered environmental issues in the past is that it almost kind of, um, de-emphasizes empathy and says like oh because this person is a trail runner you should care about them or oh because this is a trail running related issue you should care about it and I'm very interested in expanding that to be like 
this is a human issue, so you should care about it. Like, not like you shouldn't just be engaged in environmental action because it relates to trail running. You should like you're a person. How do I like? Why do I have to explain to you that you should care about this? Like, why is that my job? And I get so frustrated the ways that I've been constrained by that narrative. Um, and I'm always looking for ways to kind of push up against those boundaries and explore them and ex exploit them too. Yeah, I guess that kind of goes back to what we were talking about previously with, you know, how people, how trail runners can can get involved in sort of in environmental justice issues. And it's like, well, why should you? Well, because you're a human. Being. You're a person. Yeah. <laughs> like, who cares if it'll get someone else trail running? Like, why do I have to explain to you that you should care about people? Like, that baffles me, but I also understand it because it's a deeply human impulse and I'm a human. Yeah, absolutely. But as um. In terms of the sport itself, what is it that you, what are kind of your favorite things about trail running and what do you think it brings people? I think it brings connection, connection to other humans. Like my, so many of my closest relationships are defined by trail running. My closest relationships to the environment are also defined by trail running. It brings me a profound sense of connectedness. And I think that, you know, I do you know, again, even though I'm, I want to always be really aware and cognizant of the limitations of that story, I want to also lean into it when it's useful and productive um, to connect people to their, to their world, to their, you know, to their community when, when possible, because that's, to me, it, you know, trail learning has just provided a profound sense of connection to myself, to others, and to our planet. And also, because I know that we've talked about, um, we've talked about your DNF um, at Western States. Um, we've talked about brave things that you've done with your writing. And I just want to give you this opportunity to really say, this is a brave thing that I've done with my running as well and that I feel proud of. Yeah, I think DNF in Western States was pretty brave. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, obviously would have loved to have not DNF'd and it wasn't necessarily like a, a choice, quote unquote, but you know, putting myself out there in a big way was scary. And I think that um, it's almost like it's hard to, like, I always tell myself, like, the only way that you can be brave is by doing scary things. And that was scary. And I got to be brave. Amazing. I, I Yeah, I really love that you that you've owned that as well. So I'm not going to talk about anything else because I think that that needs to stand as is <laughs> um, and that that's yours that's awesome um what other individuals would you shout out to doing great things that you admire at the moment um you know two two folks that I have been helping me a lot as a writer and runner lately are my friends Peter Bromka and Nick Triolo Nick is my um editor uh, another editor here with me at Trail Runner magazine and he's an amazing person who has done a lot of really incredible writing in the environmental space and is an amazing athlete himself and has really is just like a trusted comrade who I'll send my shittiest writing to and I can be vulnerable with and will take my shitty writing and figure out how to make it good um and then my friend Peter Bromka who he was one of my pacers at Western States is also just like an amazing sensitive kind human and an incredible athlete himself like just an amazing marathoner um this is me crossing the aisle into the road running space and he's really helped um developed me as a writer and has just been an amazing trusted friend and I'll I'll read anything he writes because it's just it's I feel like I I found I also found him on the internet and I felt like wow this is someone else who's trying to bring a really 
writerly practice to the run space. And we've just been, you know, we've been friends. We trade drafts of each other's stuff all the time. And I just feel so close to people that I can share writing with. That's awesome. I love the fact as well that, um, you know, we've we've kind of we've discussed the the down the pitfalls of of media and the internet, but there are so many ones. You know, late in yeah. have these cool conversations and with people and stuff. I think I've like frequently joked that like, you know, I don't know, I don't like getting feedback from strange men on the internet, but Peter was one of the first strange men who would tweet like, "This is really good. Like, I liked reading this," and we we became friends through that. So, you know, everything is double edged. I don't think. I mean, there are very few things that are all bad or all good. And um, yeah, I think that, you know, kind of trying to respect and reflect those relationships, those positive relationships that I've gotten out of those spaces is is important for me. I found Nick on Instagram years ago because he had an account um, a, called Mandor- the Mandorla Project, which is just Instagramming about books that increase empathy. Um, so there are good things to be found out there. That's awesome. And I guess that's also tying in with what we were saying about authenticity. Well, like what makes those connections authentic? Well, there's a human, there's a human behind yeah. an empathetic human who also writes posts about empathetic books. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also kind of itching because I can see oh, I've got my books behind me and I can see your bookshelf. So I just I, I, I'm more curious and also for any listeners who happen to be like, what's on your reading list at the moment? <laughs> I've been reading this book called Body Work by Melissa Phoebos. She's an amazing nonfiction writer that I love so, so much. Um, she, um, yeah, and it's it, it's it's an entire book about the craft and practice of personal narrative. And I would recommend it to, to everyone. I think personal narrative is some of the most challenging stuff for me to write. That's not necessarily like my uh, most comfortable gear writing about myself, but I'm trying to do it more and more because that tends to be the stuff that people resonate with more than just like, here's me being a dry authoritative journalist. The stuff that people really connect with is is the more emotive, personal. Um, and she does an amazing job of breaking down techniques and practices and the why behind personal narrative. That's awesome. I'll make it, well, maybe send me a link to that afterwards. And then I can... <laughs> yeah, it's, I would highly recommend. See how that's sort of influencing things that you're writing as well at the moment. And I, I definitely, I feel like she's kind of helped me again, like understand a bit more of the why behind what's working and what's maybe not working. Thank you. And what is, what's next both for you um, in writing, in running, um, and also for Trail Runner too? Yeah, um, working on the next season of DNF. Uh, that should be coming out in November. And that's been really fun and challenging to kind of revamp that project because it's time consuming and emotionally demanding, but super rewarding. And then running wise, I'm looking to do a 100K, the UTMB Puerto Vallarta race in October. So I'm excited to run long again after taking a little bit of a, a break and recovering from Western states. Um, I mean, I trained through the summer, but usually I race a lot more during the summer and stepped away from competition for a little bit to get healthy and make sure that like I was like, I don't ever want to race if I don't feel like I'm racing to my potential. And now I feel like I'm ready to race to my potential again. That's so sensible. And your coach is David, is it David Roach? Who's your yes. coach? Yeah, I know that he's really big into, you know, listening to your body and and mm-hmm. and, and doing what's right for you at the moment. Yeah as well and he's he's a writer for trail runner too yeah yeah I you know I originally found him because of his writing and again another person I've become friends with because I just loved 
the work that they were committing to the to the page. Yeah, it's great. I, I really like that balance between kind of the the scientific and the and and the downright weird, which yes, yeah, <laughs> which is just fantastic. Um, and so with with Trail Runner going forwards, um, what's kind of your vision with it? Um, again, I think it's just trying to give myself permission to, I mean, this is something David always says, but let my freak flag fly and write the things that resonate with me and trying to cultivate an engaged base of readers rather than trying to be like an SEO optimized machine that sure people will find me on Google, but it doesn't like, it's not something they'll like think about for days on end. I always want to write stuff that people will think about rather than people just find and forget immediately. And just trying to continue to finesse my my writing and like build up a stable of other writers and push myself and everyone forward by holding ourselves accountable to our potential. That's amazing. That's there's so much energy I feel going forward yeah. into the fall. We've got a, a fast hundred k to crack yes. on with, and and some great goals there. I think as well, kind of that yeah. sort of rally, rally and on. <laughs> yes, <laughs> lots to look forward to in the future. Which is awesome. And final question, which is maybe the hardest of the lot. Um, what does joy mean to you, Zoe? <laughs> Oh, I feel like that's, I mean, frequently every writer gets, or runner gets asked about their why. And mine is very simple. Like it's joy. I love running. Um, and I think that joy is important. I think it's a driving force behind a lot of what I do is trying to find joy where I can and trying to find it in strange and and in strange and surprising places. And I think that, you know, it, it gets, it's undervalued by our culture, like happiness, joy. Like, I think these are profound things that we that we that are that are worthy of our time and attention and so trying to be actively engaged in finding those and connecting with them that's awesome absolutely um and i yeah i think as you say it's something that can be fluffified <laughs> sometimes <laughs> and and seen as something that maybe maybe we shouldn't be pursuing that but it's kind of what makes the world go round right is yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> a little more joy and a little more humanity well yes. thank you so much Zoe I'm going to kind of like pull that to a close because basically there's just so many things that I could just <laughs> go off on and I'm probably going to fangirl you for the yeah. rest of your life now <laughs> um, but for our listeners maybe just pausing it there and then allowing you just to now direct them um, to any links that you want to shout out to for your own personal stuff um, and then yeah. for other things going on <laughs> um, yeah most of my writing right now is on trailrunnermag.com um, or womensrunning.com I'm also contributing now to the relay um, which is a Patreon. It's a it's a reader funded um, newsletter with high end running content, and you can find that at Patreon backslash Relay. Awesome. Okay, and I'll put those in the show notes as well. So just you know, perfect. Send me anything that you want to, um, and I hope you have a fantastic day. And that uh, it was day now <laughs> for <Yes>. you, <laughs> Colorado. Thanks for getting up with your bucket of coffee. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, giant I, carafe oh my goodness there's more of it <laughs> listeners can't see it off screen but we've just had a carafe on yeah. um and just good luck with everything that is coming for you I am so so excited for you yeah thank you so much bye bye every
I am so grateful to the community that is growing around the podcast. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, I would so appreciate if you can share it with your communities and help spread the message of support, perseverance and joy further. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests, you can find me on Instagram at running underscore on underscore joy. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time for Running on Joy.